Chapter 15 of The Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 The Flame Signal. Woodhall had succeeded in getting a very accurate description of the trails on Mount Tucker. There were several, one leading directly to the summit, one branching off some two miles from the beginning of the ascent and leading over to a pond and halfway between this junction and the summit a third swung off to the west to a spur of the mountain. The latter was an old trail, seldom used. All three were what is known as blaze trails. That is, they were so seldom used that there was only the faintest kind of a path, often lost altogether, and it was necessary to follow a line of blazes, as the scars made by chipping a broad sliver from the trunk of a tree every few feet are called. Walter was an expert at this, and Hal had shown no mean ability during his two summers at Woodcraft. To Woodhall, of course, it was second nature to follow such a trail. He did it almost unconsciously, as is the habit of the trained forester and hunter. Plimpton knew the idea, but had no practical experience. Lewis had prepared two rough charts of these trails as described to him, and one of these he now gave to Walter. "'You youngsters are anxious to spend a day on the mountain, "'and there is no good reason why you shouldn't,' said he. "'I'm anxious to get a deer to supply the larder with fresh meat, "'and I doubt if we shall have a better opportunity than today. "'You know it is the first day of the open season. "'Now I propose to let you fellows show what your woodcraft training is good for. "'You've got a rough chart, and you know how to follow a blaze trail. "'There is no reason why you shouldn't make the summit without any trouble.' "'Do you see the bare ledge a little below the top?' Lewis pointed up at the face of the mountain, which could be clearly seen from the camp. "'That is supposed to be the lookout of the old chief of the legend. "'A trail leads down to it from the summit. "'Just be careful on the ledges. "'Remember that an accident up there would be a mighty serious thing. "'I'll go with you to the trail over to the pond.' I have an idea there is a fat buck waiting for me over there, despite the fact that half the village and some city hunters who came in yesterday morning are in the woods. If I have any luck and get back first, I may start along the trail to meet you. Then again, I may not. Take matches and grub along. You know you might get lost, and it's always best to be prepared. Take your sweaters. It is likely to be cold on top. This plan rather pleased the boys, for they liked the idea of being thrown on their own resources. At once they began preparations. On Woodhall's advice they put on the stout walking shoes which they had brought along to wear at the end of the cruise. Lewis pointed out that these were far better suited to the rough work of mountain climbing than were the moccasins or sneaks. He himself retained his moccasins because he was to do still hunting, and for this purpose the moccasin is unequaled. Each fastened to his belt one of the drinking cups, and Walter dealt out to each a liberal ration of hardtack and a few squares of sweet chocolate. In addition, he slipped into his own pocket a few bullion cubes and a package of raisins. In the meantime, Lewis had cut three stout staffs, one of which he presented to each of the young climbers, none of whom needed to be told how useful these might and indeed were likely to prove. The camp was put in order, the tent flaps tied, and they were ready to hit the trail. "'Is it quite safe to leave the camp all alone this way?' asked Hal, a shadow of doubt crossing his face. "'Just as safe as if you sat on guard all day with a rifle on your knees,' replied Woodhall. 
These children of the forest are full of curiosity, but they are as honest as daylight. That is, the two-legged ones. Remembrance of the biscuit episode flashing across his mind. I would have no fear of leaving the camp unguarded for a couple of days, and that is more than I could say in the vicinity of any of our hometowns or villages. Lewis led the way, his rifle across the hollow of his left arm, and behind him an Indian file strode the others. The trail was picked up at the mouth of a little brook, which it followed for perhaps a mile. It then bore off to the left through fairly open woods, and with a rise it was hardly perceptible. The trail had not been blazed for several years, and on this account required close observation on the part of the leader. The axe scars had become dark with age. In many cases the bark had crept over from the surrounding surface so as nearly to cover the bare wood. These facts Woodhall pointed out as they reached the place where he was to turn off for the pond, and he laid great stress on the necessity for constant vigilance. Once off the trail, it would be largely a matter of luck if they picked it up again, and this he tried to impress upon them. They promised to take due care, and he left them with a light heart, for he had great faith in Walter's ability as a woodsman and in his natural common sense and level-headedness. "'We're going to find that mine,' shouted Hal just before they got out of hearing. "'Stake a claim for me,' Lewis replied. Woodhall now gave all his attention to the object of his own trip, the getting of a supply of fresh meat. He had long since acquired to perfection the long stride of the woodsman, rolling from the hips in the soundless step of the still hunter. That he should have been in the woods at daylight he was well aware— he knew that by this time the deer were moving up from the lowland to the ridges, there to lie in quiet ease until the late afternoon, when they would once more begin to move, gradually working down to the night-feeding grounds in the lowlands along the watercourse and around the lakes and ponds. Within an hour now they would be lying down, and then his only chance until toward night would be to stumble on one by luck and trust to a snapshot to bring home the meat so he quickened his pace and within half an hour saw the gleam of water ahead of him. It was the pond. Twice since leaving camp he had heard distant reports of rifles from this direction, so he had little hope of finding his game in or immediately around the water. Those shots would have startled every deer within hearing and set them moving toward high ground. He did not believe, however, that they would be badly frightened, for, this being the first day of the open season, they had not yet been hunted enough to make them wild. He decided that he would push forward to the pond at once and work around the edge until he should reach a point where he could get an idea of the lay of the land and choose the most likely ridges for his quarry. The trail struck the pond at one end, where was a little clearing and a hunter's cabin. Here Woodhall found two fine deer, a spike-horn and a doe, hung up and a party of three hunters and a guide in high spirits over their success. They gladly gave Lewis all the information they could, relative to the nature of the surrounding country, and wished him the best of luck. The pond was of perhaps ten acres in extent, and lay in a depression between two ridges. The ridge to the west was covered with thickets of young second growth. The eastern ridge was a recent lumber-cutting. A tangle of dead tops with here and there a clump of maples or birches or perhaps a spruce too small for the saw and axe. Lewis chose the western ridge and cautiously worked his way to the top of it. Beyond lay another ridge, an old lumber cutting which had been burned over within two years. Lewis smiled when he saw it. 
I'll work along this ridge first, but I'll bet my last dollar that my meat is over there. Anyway, there'll be enough old lumber trails to make fairly easy hunting, and if I don't find my meat, I'm almost certain to find plenty of late blueberries, he thought. It was noon before he had finished working the ridge he was on. It had been slow, difficult work, for it was so dry that it was nearly impossible to avoid rustling the leaves. Twice he had heard a sharp whistle below him and turned just in time to catch a farewell wave of a white flag as a deer bounded to cover. He sat down on an old stump to rest and to munch a cracker and a few raisins while he studied the opposite ridge. The snapping of a twig to his left drew his attention. Slowly, so slowly that the motion was almost imperceptible, he turned his head. He had long since learned the folly of sudden movement of one who would see but remain himself unseen in the woods. Broadside to him and not thirty yards away was a splendid doe. She had just come up the hill and now stood looking over the other ridge as if undecided whether or not to go farther for her noon siesta. Instinctively Woodhall's hands sought the rifle across his knees and closed upon it tensely. Slowly, very slowly he raised it to his shoulder and glanced through the sights, his finger on the trigger. There had been no quick movement to attract the attention of the deer, and she still stood unconscious that for her life or death was a matter of the next few seconds. The ivory front sight came to rest just back of the right shoulder. For just a second the rifle hung poised as rigidly as if man and gun were carved in stone, and then... Lewis lowered the gun as slowly as he had raised it, and now he was all a-shake with relaxed excitement. In that brief space of time between the raising and lowering of his weapon, Woodhall had fought and won a battle, and a forest mother lived to perpetuate her race. The law of the state allowed each hunter two deer in a season, making no restrictions as to the sex. Woodhall, in common with many far-sighted and thinking sportsmen, believed that the law should restrict the hunter to bucks only, and that in this way the supply of deer could be increased instead of diminished, despite the ever-increasing number of hunters. He had even done some quiet work for a bill before the state legislature aimed to enact such a provision. He believed it in heart and soul. But the spirit of the huntsman burned strong within him, and only those who know the love of the chase can appreciate or in any degree understand the temptation that was his. As with finger on the trigger, his sights were drawn true on the vital spot of the big doe. It was a sure shot. Up to this instant, indeed, he had acted automatically, without conscious thought. Then, just as he was about to pull the trigger, a realization of what he was about to do swept over him. He was on the very verge of doing the thing that he condemned in others. If he pulled that trigger, he would commit no offense against the state. The law gave him the right to slay the beautiful animal standing so unconscious of her danger. It was legal and right. Uh, but was it right? Is it ever right to violate self-respect, to be untrue to self? The law gave him the right to shoot. Most men would call him a fool to hesitate. His companions wanted fresh meat, venison. He might not get another shot today. There was no valid reason under the sun why he should not shoot excepting his own manhood. He had taken an open stand against the killing of does. His integrity was at stake, the moral stamina to stand by his convictions. 
there was more than the fate of the dough hanging in the balance. There was a man's right to respect himself, and so the rifle was slowly lowered, and as it once more rested across his knees, Lewis almost unconsciously sighed. The doe threw up her head, and her startled gaze for the first time rested upon the hunter. Lewis waved a hand. There was a frightened bound. A white tail flashed out of sight behind a clump of birches. An opportunity and temptation had vanished. Woodhull finished his lunch and then started off for the burned land on the opposite ridge. Burned-over lands are always favorite resorts of deer because of the plentiful feed which springs up there, and Lewis had strong hopes that he would be able to find a buck. As he had expected, there were numerous logging roads. As these were freer from sticks and dead leaves than the rest of the land, it was easier to walk without noise. Halfway up the ridge he discovered a big patch of late blueberries. This was a temptation not to be resisted, and he was soon in the middle of it. He had eaten all that he could comfortably accommodate and was trying to devise some means of taking a supply back to camp for the others, when his glance rested on a little opening some distance along the ridge. He had noticed this opening several times before without giving it any special thought, but now he studied it with a puzzled frown. There were several charred stumps in the opening and among the bushes along the edge of it, and on these Lewis concentrated his gaze. That's funny he muttered. I could have sworn that that big stump over to the right was on the left five minutes ago. He studied it closely for a few minutes, and then, with a sudden little catch of the breath, he slowly slid down until he was flat among the bushes. The stump had moved. A bear, muttered Lewis. As sure as the sun shines, he's out blueberrying, and I bet he knows all about this patch over here. He's working this way now. Woodhull carefully tested the light wind and found that it was blowing almost toward the bear. In other words, Bruin was working upwind. The air was very light, however, and Lewis knew that the scent would carry only a short distance. At the rate he's moving, it'll be a good half hour before he gets over here, and that will give me plenty of time to prepare for his reception, thought Woodhull, and straightway began to worm his way through the bushes toward a point from which he could command the berry patch and still not be to windward of the bear, if the latter continued his present line of advance as seemed probable. He had chosen his position so that he would be screened by a clump of young birches and a tangle of raspberry canes, and now crouched with every nerve tense, straining eyes and ears for the approach of the bear. It was a full half-hour before a gentle movement of the bushes warned him that the moment for action was close at hand. By the swaying tops of the bushes he could trace the advance of the big beast, which he saw would come out into the open at a point a little nearer to him than he had planned. So he looked to his sights to see that they were set at the proper distance and then brought the rifle to his shoulder. Less than thirty yards distant the bushes parted and a full-grown bear shambled into view. Plainly Bruin was unsuspicious of danger and intent only on filling his stomach, an old stump just on the edge of the bushes drew his attention, and hooking the long, stout claws of his forefeet under it, he exerted his strength in a powerful pull which uprooted the stump. At once Bruin plunged his nose into the hole with the whines and little grunts of satisfaction, for all the world like a pig, 
and Lewis knew that he had opened an ant's nest and that his long, flexible tongue was sweeping into his eager mouth the terror-stricken insects and their larvae, of which bears are very fond. Blowing dust and sand from his nostrils and wiping his face with one big forearm, the bear sat up for an instant to look over the little opening. Then, with a gleam of satisfaction in his little big eyes, he dropped all fours and headed straight for the berry patch. This brought him just where Lewis wanted him. Aiming just back of the left shoulder, at an angle that should send the bullet ranging forward about where he believed the heart should be, he fired. At the report, the bear whirred and bit savagely at the spot where he had been hit, all the time growling fiercely. Lewis had pumped in another shell, and as the bear turned, exposing his right shoulder, fired again, his object being to shatter the shoulder if possible. The bear waited for no more, but broke for the brush in the direction from which he had just come. As he disappeared, Woodhall fired again, but he could not tell whether this was a hit or not. He knew that the first two shots had hit, and he felt sure that the animal had at least one mortal wound. But he also knew that a bear is particularly tenacious of life, and that this one might travel some distance before dropping. Hastening over to the point where the bear had entered the brush, Lewis found a broad trail of blood and at once began to follow it with every sense of alert, for he knew well the risk he ran if he should suddenly stumble upon the wounded beast at close quarters. The trail led along the ridge for a short distance, and then down toward a thicket of hemlocks in the valley between this ridge and the one on which he had seen the deer. There was a tangled windfall in this thicket, and Lewis felt sure that this was the retreat for which the bear was making." With all the caution and skill of which he was a master, he approached the thicket. He realized that it was likely to be no easy matter to get his victim in such a tangle without serious danger. A low growling, at times breaking into a half-whine, warned him that the bear was there, and, to judge by the sounds, not very far in. As the growls and whines continued to come from one spot, Woodhall knew that the animal was lying down, and this was a sign that it was hard hit. Gradually the sounds grew weaker until they ceased altogether, and a deep silence hung over the thicket. Still Lewis waited, uncertain what to do. At length, determined to put the issue to the test, he advanced slowly and with the utmost caution until he could peer in under the hemlocks. In the dim light of the dense shade he made out a black mass on the ground and felt sure that this was the bear. He could perceive no movement, but this was no time to take a chance. Bringing the rifle to bear, he fired, and instantly threw another shell into place to be prepared should the animal charge. But there was no sign of life from the thicket, and Woodhall was convinced now that the bear was dead. This proved to be the fact. By dint of much pulling and hauling, Lewis got the body out into the open. Examination showed that either the first or the second shots would have proved fatal alone. A third shot had hit the animal in the rear and ranged nearly the whole length of the body. The bear was a big fellow, and now Lewis was confronted with the problem of getting him back to camp. It was evident that he must have help. He thought of the camp at the end of the pond. "'There's the answer,' he exclaimed in relief. "'Those fellows will be tickled to death to add bear steak to their venison roast. We'll be able to carry only a few steaks from this fellow.' and I shouldn't be surprised if they will be glad to exchange a quarter of deer for the rest. It's lucky I didn't shoot at that doe. If I had, I never should have laid eyes on Mr. Bear. 
as he had expected, he found the hunters at the camp on the pond delighted to help him bring the bear, and by four o'clock that afternoon Bruin was hanging beside the deer at the camp. Woodhall arranged with the guide to skin the bear, promising to return the next morning for the skin and some of the meat. Then, with a couple of venison steaks and a light heart, he hit the trail for the camp on Swift River. He found the camp just as he had left it. There was no sign of the mountain climbers, but this did not surprise him, for he had expected that they would take the whole day to the trip. They'll be in soon, he thought, and busied himself with preparations for dinner, well knowing that they would be as hungry as young savages. It was not until the lengthening shadows warned him that it must already be dark in the woods of the lower slopes of Mount Tucker that Lewis awoke to the fact that there was a real possibility that the boys would have to spend the night in the woods. It would be almost impossible for even a trained forester to follow a blaze trail in this light, and unless the boys arrived within fifteen minutes there wasn't a chance in a thousand that they would be able to get out until the next day. Woodhull got out his rifle and fired it at intervals between time sending the woodcraft yell through his cupped hands toward the mountain, but he got no response. The one thing which seriously worried him was the fear that one of them had met with an accident among the ledges. The fact that they might be lost did not greatly trouble him. He had the greatest confidence in Upton and felt sure that if they had lost the trail, Walter would make camp at the first sheltered spot and there wait for daylight when he could make their position known by smoke signals. His shots had been heard in the village, and presently two of the young guides whom he had met in the store the afternoon before appeared at the camp. Lewis briefly explained the situation. The guys listened silently until he had finished. Then one offered to be on hand at daybreak to join Lewis in the hunt. The other had been engaged to guide for a party, but offered to cancel the engagement and join in the hunt if Woodhall felt that he was needed. Neither guide seemed to think much of the incident, however— accepting it as nothing unusual, and Lewis decided that the services of one guide would be sufficient. It was now dark. Suddenly one of the Indians leapt to his feet with an exclamation of surprise. The others looked in the direction in which he was pointing. Far up on the deep black shadow looming out from the other shadows, in which they knew to be Mount Tucker, a tiny light appeared, vanished, and appeared again. It was like a will-o'-the-wisp, Woodhall's heart gave a bound of joy. He recognized the Morse code. That tiny light which came and went was a flame signal from the lost boys. End of chapter 15